Thank you for joining us on Community Focus, where we look at the issues that matter in South Florida and the people and organizations that are making a difference. I am delighted to welcome back the president, CEO of the Urban League of Broward County, as we continue our series of discussions on diversity and equal rights. Jermaine Baugh, it's good to have you back again. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, we had such a great conversation last time we were speaking around Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s anniversary and his fight for civil rights. And we acknowledged that racial equality has yet to be reached in America. So this being Black History Month, I'd like to go back even further to the end of slavery and the ways that freedom, quote unquote, for African-Americans has been subverted. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about talking, you know, giving some education and exploring what we can do to really create equality in our community? I mean, again, Ellen, it was a really great time um, being able to talk with you the last time. And I hope the listeners were able to take some of the comments and actualize them and maybe even do a little bit more research and gather more information on their own. So I think the topic today of what a post-slavery America looked like and still looks like, you know, today is a very worthy conversation. Okay. I get the feeling that for many people, they believe that the Civil War ended, there was the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves were, again, quote unquote, freed and equal. And yet leaders, when you look at the history, particularly in the southern states, were able to limit African-Americans' freedoms. Can you tell us how that was done? Right. So in terms of, and I I want to make sure to right-size expectations for your listeners, I do not consider myself a historian in any shape or form in terms of my learning, but it doesn't take you far to read, to do your own research, to know that the physical emancipation of African and African-Americans living in this country did not equate to mental emancipation, economic emancipation, and social emancipation. So the idea that you indicate you are free, free to do what, right, becomes the the question when you aren't given or haven't had the same opportunities for education, the same opportunities to acquire assets like land and housing and the like. So imagine for generations upon generations not having the opportunity to be on an equal playing field and saying, yeah, go do this. So I liken it to my son, who is now in college, he's 18, who feels, Ellen, that he is fully emancipated, right? Mm -hmm. But yet he calls home for money. I don't know how emancipated that is, right? (laughs) Right. So again, we have to think about the way in which we started off, you know, in this quote-unquote free world. The second is, is that when we think about that time of of a post-Civil War and what that looked like for Black people and white people, we had spent a long time very clear about what our roles were and how we showed up and how we communicated. For white people, I am very sure there was a high level of fear mm-hmm. of what people would do when now, quote unquote, given the same you know opportunities and freedom. So, of course, the natural order of systems is to continue to perpetuate themselves. Right. So let's find ways to continue to perpetuate this system, even in light of these, quote unquote, new laws. So if you have the time, I would really encourage your 
listeners to there's a documentary called Wilmington on Fire is a really great documentary that gives an example of in the immediate post-Civil War era where the federal government was very much federal government entrenched in making sure that Black people were protected and the like, there was an expansion of some political wherewithal and and you would see Black people elected to different political offices in the South. You would also see businesses becoming more viable for, for Black people. But in that same tone, it was also an opportunity to say, wait a minute, folks are beginning to encroach on certain areas. How do we not do that? So Wilmington on Fire is a really good example. If your listeners, since we're here in Florida, doesn't know the story of Rosewood, there's a movie related to it that they can watch, but there's also books related to it that talks about the burning of Black communities by mobs of white people to put up boundaries for where they could and could not be. So there are a lot of examples of the fear that triggered in essence, just mass mobs decimating communities and killing people just because of wanting to keep them in their place, we would say. And I understand when you say there was certainly fear for white people, they didn't know what would happen, and also economic fear, because that was their economy, Mm -hmm. was slaves, and now who was going to do their work for them? And yet that doesn't equal killing people and continuing these ways of oppressing people for generation after generation. And after you and I spoke the first time, you had mentioned a book called The Warmth of Other Suns, that's S-U-N-S. And I started reading that. And it's talking about black flight from the South when blacks were migrating to the North to escape the Jim Crow laws, which had been put in place to basically keep African-Americans in their place. So a black person wasn't allowed to earn more than a certain amount of money. They couldn't do certain jobs. You know, it talks about a guy who's a surgeon who wasn't allowed to practice because he was black. So people were fleeing. And, you know, although there are no longer legal Jim Crow laws, how do you see the remnants of those laws and forms of oppression in action today? Oh, that is a really powerful and very interesting question at this intersection this week. When I looked last week at the threats that were bomb threats that were at historically black colleges and universities, Mm -hmm. hmm, where does that come from, right? When you look at the reaction to Brian Flores' allegations related to his the the Rooney rule and who gets interviewed and who gets jobs within the mega billions of dollars of the NFL. And when you also look at the many comments and basically pulling out all stops and having to put in all these chips just for the consideration of a overly qualified African-American or potential African-American woman on the Supreme Court, it makes you sit back and wonder, as a Black woman in today, these laws, these rules, these invisible rules that we believe that we're playing by creates these continued shifts underneath our floor, right? So we think we're doing okay until something hits us. And I think one of the things that's really important that you said there is that Jim Crow laws, they were enforced, legalized racial segregation. Mm-hmm. 
that marginalized Black people. And although those are not in place, let's ask ourselves, using just those few examples that I just shared, how are we still allowing the marginalization, I should say, of Black people today? Right. Given the fact that we are not talking about individuals who are not more than qualified, more than qualified to be at an HBCU and be safe, more than qualified to be able to lead a respected team, more than qualified to be on the Supreme Court, but yet we have these these lines that apparently cannot be crossed without somebody torpedoing their potential for advancement if they call out what we would say, speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. And once you begin to do that, you are getting into a space that can get very tricky and, and sometimes doesn't allow you as an individual to grow. You're stuck where you are. So in that light, let's talk about affirmative action and equal employment opportunity regulations that were put in place, the idea to help equal the playing field for Black people and for women. Have they helped or have they created even more resentment? Because certainly there are many white people who believe that their jobs are being given away. So I think one of the the fallacies that I want to eliminate in this comment is who really benefited from affirmative action? And by all stretches of the imagination, and there is data out there to prove this, that white women were the most, from a gender and race perspective, benefited the most from affirmative action. So when we understand that although under the guise of let us begin to level the playing field related to affirmative action, once again, we have these visuals of who benefits from what. And I would say that, yeah, there is resentment. I hear it and I see it. Definitely people, even in a post these last couple of years, when there's more conversation about equity and race and the disparities that exist, folks began to feel that again, like, oh, as a white male, I'm not going to be able to, you know, get that promotion because it's going toward, you know, this person and the like. Are those legitimate, Ellen, legitimate feelings to have? I'm not going to say that they aren't because people are having them. However, I also want people to consider what does it mean And I have been subjected to this on numerous occasions when I walk into the room and I am the only person of color Mm. in that space. What does that feel like? Right. Right. And nobody else notices it until you mention it. Like, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, again, I think it's incumbent upon us, whether through equal opportunity, equal employment opportunity, EEO, or affirmative action, or steps that we take to create greater opportunities. The bottom line is that in order for the United States of America to be the best that it possibly can be, we have to consider all the voices in the United States of America. And if that means that people need to be disrupted through laws, affirmative action policies, and the like, in order to make that happen, because as I said before, systems perpetuate themselves. There's no system that just wants to cut itself off, you know, from continuation. Mm -hmm. So we do have to do things to continue to disrupt systems in order to get to a new, and I would even suggest a better place in the way that we consider 
economic and social equality. So what does the Urban League do? What are some of the programs that you have that are working to create this equity with people of all colors and all backgrounds? There are many things that we do, but the one example that I want to emphasize here is the work that we do with our community development financial institution. We are the only headquartered community development financial institution in Broward. And what that means is that the Urban League, through one of its subsidiaries, which is called the Central County Community Development Corporation, has the ability to lend resources, in this case, to minority businesses to help them, so resources, capital, to help them to grow their business. So one way that you tend to look at equity and equality is through economics. How is that pie being appropriately shared and being able to help people to grow their assets? And clearly, starting businesses, growing businesses, is a way to grow assets. You're hiring individuals. If you're the entrepreneur, business owner, you're growing your own assets, you know, at the same time. So one way that the Urban League is looking to level that playing field, right, is to challenge our anchor institutions and corporations to look at their overall spend. What do they spend with vendors, you know, external Mm. vendors? And how much of that spend is going to minority businesses. And when we say minorities, and this is why I talk about, you know, getting into the data and knowing who benefits from what, you're like, oh, we spend X amount with minorities. But then when you begin to break down white female, black female, Hispanic female, you know, you just break it down by race and gender. Once again, those are the questions that we have to ask to see where is the money going? Right. Right. And being able to build businesses. So one area that I I feel really proud of is our ability to help small, well, minority businesses, they don't have to be small per se, but minority businesses grow by providing access to capital, providing access to technical assistance and support, and providing access to the market, challenging our corporations and our anchor institutions like hospitals, universities, government to look at the way that they are spending their dollars and encouraging them and challenging them to increase their spend with minority businesses. Now, how can someone who is a person of color and wants to start their own business or has started their business, because, you know, we've seen often the only way they can become the CEO is by starting their own business, being entrepreneurial. How can they get Mm -hmm. access to what you are providing in terms of this economic support, technical assistance and more? Love the question, Ellen. Thank you so much. They can go to our website, uabroward.org. And on that website, it has a section that says Entrepreneurship Center. They can click on that, learn a little bit more about the services that we provide, and they can actually give an inquiry right there that they are interested in hearing more, learning more, and the like. We also have orientations that we do. That information is also on our website. And if they want to call the office, at 954-584-0777. They can say, I'm interested in learning more about the Entrepreneurship Center and lending opportunities, and they will be able to be connected to the appropriate staff. And then how do we encourage people of all colors and backgrounds to patronize these businesses? You know what? I want to encourage this. I want to challenge your listeners, our listeners, right? During the month of Black history, 
right? And hopefully you do it beyond Black History Month, because I believe Black History is 365. But during this particular month, ask yourself, did I patron a Black-owned business this week? Is there an opportunity for me to be able to go to a Black-owned restaurant, you know, a vendor that is Black-owned? You know, personally, there are professional attorneys and lawyers, accountants and the like. They'd be like, maybe I might want to consider taking a part of my personal business or my personal accounts and maybe have it be managed by an African-American private banker. There are all kinds of things that you can do to personally disrupt. And I'll give an example that for me personally, I do it. But even at the Urban League, when we have businesses or business propositions that might be with a large firm, we will ask, do you have minority partners in your business? We want our business to be done by that minority partner. There are lots of things that you can do to help to create greater access, greater equity, and opportunities for African Americans on a whole. And I'm so glad you mentioned that. How do you find out what organizations are minority-owned or have CEOs who represent minorities? Is there a Black Chamber of Commerce that people can go to to find businesses that are minority-owned? Absolutely. Yes, Ellen, we have, in all three counties, there are um, Black Chambers, Black Chamber of Commerce. So Broward has a Black Chamber of Commerce. Miami-Dade has the same. You can look up their website. On their website, they have a list of members who are members of the Black Chamber. We also have what we, in Broward County, we have a Minority Builders Coalition, If you're looking for contractors and those in the construction arena, you can go onto their website, call their offices. They have a list there. And then there are definitely entities like Legacy Magazine and Westside Gazette, the South Florida Times, which are all Black publications here in South Florida that has listings of Black-owned businesses and the like that people can patron. Okay, perfect. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to continue the conversation. I'm loving what we're uh, revealing here. And a couple of topics for the future. We need to talk about voting this year in particular and um, access to voting. And I'm also curious for next time we talk about the next generation, younger generations, and whether you see them being more accepting of people of all colors and backgrounds. So we'll let that kind of rumble around in our heads for a month. And like you said, this is a 365 (laughs) issue. So this is not going to end just because it's Black. History Month. We're going to continue to talk throughout the year. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ellen. It is such a pleasure talking to you. Again, it's Jermaine Baugh, President, CEO of the Urban League of Broward County. ulbroward.org is the website. Since we've been talking about diversity, if you want to really see diversity in action, wait till you see the diverse and delicious types of food and beverages you're going to find at the 21st Annual Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival presented by Capital One coming this Thursday through Sunday. I cannot wait. To tell us more, Andrea Moreno, Public Relations Manager with the festival, is with us. You have got to be slammed with this thing only days away. Thank you for finding time to talk with us. Of course. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. 
With more than 90 events and 400 top chefs and celebrities, there's so much going on. I don't even know where to start, so I'm going to let you do the talking. What can we expect (laughs) this year? (laughs) Yes, it is a monster of a festival. So for those of you that are not familiar, the festival is over 90 events, as you mentioned, and it spans four days. So Thursday the 24th through Sunday the 27th. Some events that I think people would like and find very interesting. We have diners, drive-ins, and dives live with Guy Fieri for our Guy Fieri fans. We're kicking off the festival this year with that event. It's new to our programming, and it will feature 25 of the greasy spoon eateries that you see on the show. Oh, my Um, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, we've reached out to folks from all around the country that have been on the show, so you'll get to meet them and and try their food right on the sands of Miami Beach. That one's going to be really, really great. And on Friday, another one that I have to mention is Burger Bash. It's our most popular event, I would say, over the last 21 years. And it will be hosted by Rachel, Ray, and Jose Andres, who so many know and love. And it's a burger competition. Who doesn't love that? Uh, Nobody. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) does. And that's only a few of the big names. Keep going. Yes. So that will be on Friday night. And then what I tell everybody that they have to go to if they've never been to the festival is our Grand Tasting Village. It spans four blocks on the sands of Miami Beach. We built literally a village of restaurants and activations, and it features a ton of wine and spirits brands. And you get in there and you get to walk, you know, it's tented. For those who are maybe worried about the sun, it's tented. And it's this amazing, incredible village with lounge seating and all you can eat, food and bites. And on Sunday, we're really excited about this one. On Sunday, David Grutman, hospitality impresario here in Miami, Uh many are familiar with him, does a little mini festival from three to five in our courtyard. And we're going to have French Montana performing and Gianluca Vacci. So we're really excited about that. It's just amazing. There are a couple of names that I noticed that people might be surprised to hear. One of them, Pharrell Williams. With (laughs) with soul food. That's got to be incredible. Yes, Pharrell Williams will be hosting a brunch with his family. He does it with his dad, Pharaoh, at Swan in the Design District. So that one's going to be pretty awesome. We're really excited to have him and his family at the festival this year. Right. And Dwayne Wade, another one. You know, a lot of celebrities we find go into the restaurant business kind of either as a backup plan, you know, as if Pharrell or Dwayne needs a backup plan or just because they're passionate about it and they're able to. And what's Dwayne's deal? Dwayne, of course, beloved Miami icon. We love him. He's been so good to the festival. As many know, he has his wave sellers, his wines. And I know that he is brewing up a new burger concept as well. So he will be a judge at our Burger Bash. And he will also be hosting Food Venture at the new food hall in downtown Miami. He will be hosting that amazing walk around event. It'll be highlighting all the restaurants that will be opening in the culinary market in downtown. It's jaw dropping. And one of the things that's really cool is in addition to all the food, you actually have incorporated fitness as well. Yes. Right. We can't just eat and drink all day. We well, have we to can. sweat it out a little bit. <laughs> 
For sure, yeah. For those that love fitness, those foodies that love to kind of get a workout in in the morning, we've tapped the amazing Robert Irvine. He's all about fitness. He will be doing a boot camp at Nikki Beach. And we've also tapped a big celebrity name. She's all about yoga and her fabletics, Kate Hudson. Oh, she will my be leading. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, she's going to be leading a yoga class on Sunday morning. How do you fit it all in? I think one of the most difficult things as a person visiting South Beach Wine and Food Festival is trying to choose which events to really give your time to because there are so many and they're so great. And this year you've actually expanded into Hallandale Beach with a family fun fest featuring Kids Kitchen. I'm really excited about that. Tell us about that. Yes, we are in Hollandale this year. We're so excited to have our kids' family-friendly event there. It's going to be amazing. It's Saturday and Sunday, and for all ages, family can bring their kids, and there's a bunch of great culinary demos from your favorite Food Network and Cooking Channel stars. So they will be up close and personal, teaching your kids and you how to cook and some healthy tips in the kitchen. And of course, we will have plenty of food and drinks. We've actually curated a lineup of food trucks that will be there serving up their amazing bites. So that should be a really fun one for the whole family. And if someone wants to look through the whole list to get a look at everything, and I credit to whoever designed the website, it's so easy to find whether you want to look by the day or by the, the chef or by the type yeah. of event. It's at WFS. There's an educational component. You call it Eat, Drink, and Educate. I had no idea that you are educating and funding students at FIU. Can you tell us how that works? Yes, I'd love to share more on that. So we always say that the backbone of this festival are student volunteers. Each year, we have over 1,200 student volunteers, mainly from FIU, but we've branched out into the community as well. We also have some kids this year from Miami Norland High School, from Florida Memorial, and they help put on this festival. They get the most incredible hands-on experience working alongside of these chefs and our event planners and managing everything from front of house to back of house to coordinating logistics. I think we're one of the only festivals in the country that kind of has this setup that gives kids that are studying hospitality the opportunity to really dig in and have this hands-on experience. And they benefit from the funds raised. 100% of our net proceeds benefit the FIU Chaplain School. And to date, we've raised over 31 0.8 million for the future leaders of the hospitality industry. That's just incredible. Thank you for that. And I've got to think that between the festival and the rise of the Food Network and the Cooking Channel, there must be so much more interest in this industry, in hospitality. And with the food trucks, the idea that you can have your own little business without having to have a brick and mortar location it makes it more affordable so more people can participate. Yes, absolutely. It's incredible to see how much this industry has grown here in our South Florida community. Um, and we are happy to think that we've had a little hand in that 
just watching it grow over the last 21 years, seeing how many mom and pop restaurants are succeeding and thriving, especially in such difficult time, right? Considering yes. the pandemic over the last few years, I feel really, really proud to be a part of this community. I think I speak for all of us and just seeing the industry thrive in the way that it is and see it grow into what it's become. Hospitality took such a big hit. When we had shut down, it was like restaurants had to shut down and that's people's income. And the ones who were able to modify their service and say, okay, we're going to do curbside pickup. Those are the ones who managed to get through it and now are able to open up again. What are the requirements as far as COVID goes for people attending the festival? Yeah, so we kind of led the charge in 2021. We were the first major food and wine event to come back in the country in the way that we did. And we put together a really comprehensive set of COVID-19 health and safety protocols that we're continuing this year. So for those attending, I think the most important thing to know is that we have a digital health screening with SimCheck. It's a really friendly app. You scan a QR code and we require either proof of a negative test 72 hours before attending or proof of full vaccination. That's an important way in which we make sure we're covering our bases and making sure that we have a comfortable and safe festival for everyone. We will also be working with Biosent, canine detection dogs. Yes, Mm -hmm. I had read about that when they first started using them at airports. Yeah, we've hired an amazing team over at Biosent. They're actually these adorable beagles that are trained (laughs) to sniff. I know, they're so cute. Um, Trained to sniff for COVID-19. So why you're waiting in line, don't be alarmed. I mean, they're cute faces, but they're doing hard work and making sure we're keeping everyone safe. It definitely adds a fun component to a serious subject. And with being able to, you know, if you can show the negative test three days before you've got time, would a home test count or does it have to be an official PCR test? Yeah, we require a PCR test. Um, 72 hours prior to your attendance of the event. And that's all on the website, right? The details on that? Yes. Okay. Yes, everything is on the website. As you mentioned, it's very user-friendly. You can scan events by category, whether you're more interested in an intimate dinner and a walk-around event. In the fitness or family-friendly, everything is really easy to navigate, and our health and safety protocols are all on there as well. Is there anything else that people should know before they go? Before you go, I tell everybody (laughs) tips, stay hydrated, wear sunscreen, and bring comfortable shoes. A lot of our events are in Miami Beach. They're very walkable and close to each other, so you can go to a brunch in the morning, grand tasting in the afternoon, and a later event in the evening. So just make sure you dress comfortable and are prepared for a little bit of sun, even though I think we're due for some fantastic weather next week. Yes. And what about parking? Will there be in the garages nearby? Yeah, we have all of those details on our website. But we recommend street parking or parking in the nearby garages. All of those are detailed in our transit and parking tab on our website. Carpooling. Great idea. Carpooling and ride also new to Miami. They're pretty awesome. They'll they'll get you there and, and back safely. And if you're going to participate in any of the beverage experiences, probably a good idea to do a ride share as well. Absolutely. I'm just so excited and I know it's going to be an amazing four days again, starting this Thursday, the 21st annual 
Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival presented by Capital One. And again, it benefits the hospitality department and students at Florida International University. Andrea Moreno, thank you so much for what you do. And I hope that at the end of it all, you get a chance to just chill and eat some of the leftovers. Absolutely. That, that'll that be me on Sunday evening. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, thank you again so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ellen. Look forward to having you. Once more, the website, sobewff.org for South Beach Wine and Food Festival. I'm Ellen Jaffe. Thank you so much for listening today. If you have questions or would like to suggest a topic for the program, please feel free to email me at ellen.jaffe at cmg.com. That's J-A-F-F-E at cmg.com. Hope you have a wonderful day. Join us again next Sunday for an all-new edition of Community Focus.